Hebrews 2 and teach on so great salvation, which is mentioned in verse 3. But I'll start reading with verse number 1, read several verses, and then I'll, I'll, I'll have a word, of, a word of prayer. Just good to see you folks on a warm day like today. Oh, my praise the Lord for air conditioning. That's one of the great modern inventions of mankind, I tell you. Okay, Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his will. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? So, so great salvation. Let's have a word of prayer this evening. Father, we are deeply appreciative of how wonderful you are and how good you've been to each one of us. We praise you for our life, our health, and our strength, for the redemption you provided by the giving of your son. Now, as we fellowship around the word of God and desire to hear from you, we want you to speak to us clearly uh, give us ears to hear, help us to see things maybe we've never considered before. And more than anything else, keep us on the right path, on the right track. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In chapter 1, we dealt with two questions. To which of the angels did God ever say was his son? We told you none of the angels ever heard that. Then we dealt with another question, to which of the angels did the Lord ever say, you are entitled to sit here at my right hand? And we found out none of them were entitled to that prestige or that position. Paul has been trying to demonstrate throughout chapter 1 Jesus' supremacy over angels, that he's better than angels, mightier than angels, more preeminent than angels, that there's nothing about these spiritual beings that is even comparable to who Jesus is. So in Hebrews 1, towards the end, we worked on the character of God in verses 8 and 9, and then we told you that all of the works of the Lord will essentially perish or change, but Jesus remains the same. He is the one constant thing in this world and in all of eternity that never mutates or, or suffers any kind of, of change at all. And this is why we have that first word of chapter 2, verse 1. Because of all of that, or as a result of that, therefore, we should give the more earnest heed to what we've heard. So if we really believe Jesus is the king, and we really believe that he's occupying the throne of the universe and the throne of our hearts, if we really believe that, then everything we've heard about him, we should do our best to hold on to. That's what he's saying here in verse 1. Now, I want us to go back a couple of books or, yeah, a couple of books to 2 Timothy. Just before Hebrews, 
You have Philemon and Titus. Uh, go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I just want to, for a few moments, work on that idea of what you heard. All of us understand how important it is to hear, because even in the book of Revelation, it says to him that has an ear, let him hear. But 2 Timothy 1, look at verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, since he's been appointed a preacher. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. That's actually a hymn. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What has he committed to God? His life, his eternity, his destiny, his future. Verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words which you have, what's that next verb? Heard, which you have heard of me. In faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, that thing which was committed unto thee, keep by means of the Holy Ghost which dwells in us. So what you have heard about God is important. What you've, been, what you've been taught is very important. And if I were to ask you, if you were sitting at a table and somebody said to you, okay, you, you've, I know you're a Christian, I know you go to church, you go to Bible study, you have a Bible and you read it and, and that kind of a thing, but I mean, what are the basic concepts or the basic principles? What are the rudimentary elements of the gospel that I need to know in order to be a Christian? And you should be able to give some basic answer as far as what, what that means. You should be able to help someone know that, that, that Jesus came into this world born of a virgin. That essentially, he's God, came into this world. That in this world, he lived, and he lived so that he was without sin. Jesus never did anything in his life that was obscene. He never did anything that was that was wrong. He never erred. He died on the cross for our sins. And of course, he was buried and raised from the dead. And then he went back up to heaven. So those kinds of things that you have heard, he says to Timothy here, hold fast, embrace them and don't let them go. I'll go back to Hebrews 2 then. And look at what is stated there in verse number one. Give the more earnest heed to the things which you have heard, lest at any time you let them slip. Some translations will say, lest you drift off course, like a ship, just moving in the, the, the wrong direction. To give earnest heed means to pay attention. The same way you would tell a child when you wanted to ensure that the information was getting over to that kid and you draw that kid in real close to you. And, and, and then just about put your nose up against his or her nose so that they knew exactly what you were saying. And if you were like my mom or dad, you might even knock on our heads. Is there anybody in there right now as I'm talking to you? That's what, that's what we're talking about. Give earnest heed. And if, the, if what God has said to you and, and, and spoken to you and what you've learned of him is, is important, you ought to hold on to it. Uh, there are many things all of us have in our homes that we think are precious. Maybe an heirloom that came from your grandmother, your great-grandparents. Maybe it's a Bible that at one time belonged to your mom or your dad or someone else in the family. Could be a table, a quilt, a bedspread, a vase, whatever it might be. The, the, the way that you would go out of 
uh, I should say you would go out of your way to try to preserve that and keep it so that it, nothing would ever happen to it. You want to be the exact same way with the things of God. You want to make sure that you don't lose what's been given to you. That's what he's talking about. It, it has to be treated as though it's precious. And certainly we don't want to get off course. You know, if you've got a, a satellite outside your home, a dish, and, and, and that's how you watch television, then, then you know on that dish, whatever direction it's pointed, it's got to receive a signal. And when you're setting that thing up, it's got a, a little green bar that goes across that says 70%, 80%, 90%. And, and if it gets so low, you lose the signal. And if it gets down there by 60% or whatever, you may not even have a picture. Well, that, that's what it means to, to get off course. You can, you can be on your way in a particular direction, but just a little bit will take you off course, and you'll never even know until it's too late. If the astronauts who launch from Florida, if they were even off two degrees and they were headed towards whatever planet, the moon or something like that, they'd never even see it. You understand? They'd never even see it. And the scripture says that there are things we should do that can keep us on course. So the word of God is a compass. Anybody that's ever lost, they can find their way through the storm uh, with the compass. And, and then he gives us a parallel. He says in verse two, the, the word that came to us from angels was steadfast. Now, maybe you've never thought about the Old Testament law coming to Moses by means of angels. But that's what Galatians 3 says. Galatians 3 verse 19 says that the law was mediated or administered by angels. God spoke to Moses through an angel out of the flame of a bush. And when Moses received the law and gave it to the people, whenever they transgressed that law and when they disobeyed the law, they were judged because of the law and had to deal with the results of their transgression. So penalty came to them. So this is why he says in verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If Israel was delivered from Egypt and they had the law and they were judged when they did wrong things, how in the world will it be that folks like us who have heard the word that didn't come from angels, but word, the word that came from the Lord, how will we be able to escape? Well, there's a very simple answer. We won't. There's nobody on this earth that's going to be able to escape the judgment of the Lord. You say, well, Pastor Darrell, what about, what about the innocent native over in, in Africa or Papua New Guinea or down in the jungles of South America that's never heard the gospel? Well, the first thing is that's why we should do everything we can to share the gospel with people. The second thing we need to know is there's no such thing as a poor, innocent native in Africa or South America. They may not have heard the gospel, but they're not innocent. The scripture says in Romans, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's nobody that's innocent. You say, well, how, how will God judge people on the basis uh, of their sins? How can God judge people who have rejected his son if they didn't know his son ever came to the earth. Well, Romans chapter one says people aren't rejected merely because they don't know Jesus. They're rejected and judged because of the witness of all the creation that they deny. That's where it starts. 
Scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God. So if a person is sensitive and has an ear to listen, I mean, they'll recognize there's a God through the formations of the stars in the skies at night. That the the petals on the rose, on, on, on the beautiful flowers that you plant, all of that testifies to how great God is. The scripture says the visible things of God reveal the invisible God that made the visible things. That's Romans chapter one. And that is why in Romans chapter two, the scripture says, therefore, mankind is without excuse. So there never be a person who will pass away from this life and end up in a godless eternity who got there by accident and who's there unjustly. There's no unrighteousness of which you can accuse God. He knows exactly what he's doing. And to take this point a little bit further, we don't even know the things that God is doing around the world with every individual person. So when I lived in Istanbul, Turkey, Istanbul was one of those cities that was very large 25 years ago when I was there. And they told us then, I don't know what it is now, but then they said there was about 16 million people in that city. Istanbul was so large, it's on the Bosphorus Sea, that half of the city was in Asia. The other half of the city was in Europe. So on the European side, the people dressed kind of like we dress. On the Asian side, they were far more conservative. You had far more Muslim-minded people over there dressing in that kind of a, a thing. Well, I attended a church on the Asian side, and, and I remember the pastor telling a story of his conversion. And I'm getting all of this through translation. And the pastor said, I was raised in whatever village it was over there. And he said, I'd never met a Christian, never seen a Bible, never been near a church, certainly had never been in a church. And he said, one day, he said, while he was sleeping, the Lord came to him in a dream or a vision. And he said, in that dream or vision, the Lord said to him, I want you to go to such and such village. And there's a Christian bookstore there. I want you to buy a Bible. And you read John chapter three. Now, that's my paraphrase, but that's essentially what what he said to him in, in the vision. So he went to the, the bookstore in the village, just like the Lord said. And the, the man behind the counter didn't want to sell it to him because he thought he was a Muslim acting like he was a Christian trying to create problems for him, the bookstore owner. Because in, in Turkey, it's against the law to leave Islam and convert to anything other than Islam, you know, another branch of Islam. Well, he got the Bible and he went home, read John chapter three, believed it, accepted it. And according to his testimony, Jesus appeared to him several other times talking to him about the ministry. How he wanted him to serve him. There's another gentleman that about 15 years ago was over in Mecca. You know, they got that big black stone for the pilgrimage and thousands of people. You see him walking around. Well, this this gentleman is in southeast Turkey as a pastor now. But he said he was a Muslim in Mecca. And while he was walking around the stone, he said he looked at the top of it and he saw Jesus standing at the top. Now, how he knew it was Jesus, he didn't know. He just knew it was Jesus standing at the top of it. And Jesus told him to go back home to his village and go to a church and give his heart to him. Now, think about that. Now, nobody else walking around that black stone saw Jesus at the top. Nobody else heard 
that voice, but don't be surprised. That's similar to what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9, where it says all the people were with him, and he saw that bright shining light. He heard the voice, but the people with him didn't hear the voice. And that's how Saul became a Christian in Acts chapter 9. I bring that up merely to say that we have no idea what God is doing around the world and in people's homes and in people's lives and trying to lead them to salvation. But the one thing we do know is that salvation not going to come through anybody other than Jesus Christ that we do know. So the scripture says in verse three again, how shall we escape? We won't. The gospel, the salvation that was spoken to us by the Lord, confirmed by him that heard him. Who, who were those that heard him? The apostles, the people that walked with Jesus. Remember, Paul was not one of the twelve. Paul became a convert and then he spent time with the twelve and learned more about the Lord. It says in verse four, God was bearing them witness with signs and wonders. This is why the book of Acts is filled with miracles and the gospels are filled with miracles. The whole point of that is to testify that God is all powerful and he's sovereign over all of his creation. Even death is subject to the Lord. That's why Jesus could raise people from the dead. The widow woman at Nain her son was raised from the dead on the way to the cemetery. Lazarus, four days dead. They said, Lord, now he's smelling. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. These things are proofs. The visions of the Turkish gentleman that I told you about. Those are signs. What, what, what's a sign? It's, it's just like when you're riding down the road and you see a stop sign or a yield sign. That, that sign there is, is designed to be an indicator. And it gives you a lot of information. And in some, some places where you go in the United States, they don't even bother to put words on the signs anymore. Now they just put all kind of little stick figures and characters and you're able to discern what it means. You know what stop means. See? Just by the fact that it's a red sign sometimes. Well, a vision is a sign that is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. It happened in ancient times and in many ways it's happening right now through various gifts and distributions of the Holy Spirit. People are coming to realize this. And this is why we have in verse five the next statement, which I'm going to put in the form of a question. Unto which of the angels did he put in subjection the world to come? None of them. Angels don't control the future. They don't control the, the world that we live in now. They're not, when I say that, I mean they, they don't have all power over the world in which we live. But then he goes on to argue that all of this creation has been placed in the hands of our Savior. And so verses 6, starting all the way down through verse 11 or 12, the, the, the author here is going to argue for the humanity of the Lord. See, in chapter 1, he was talking about he's God and he's strong. Now he's trying to demonstrate Jesus came to be like us, to look like us, to act like us in order to redeem us. So this is why we have the question in verse number 6. What is man that you're mindful of him? Well, God loves man. That's why he visited him. How did he visit him? Through his son. God so loved the world, he gave his son. The son so loved the world, he gave his life. We should love God so much that we give our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. Verse 7, you made him, that's Jesus, a little lower. That is to say, what would be 
perceptibly to our eyes inferior to angels because he had a human body. An angel is a spirit being. You made him a little lower than angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor, but you put him over the works of your hands. How is Jesus over the works of his hands? Verse 8. He put all things in subjection under his feet. That's very similar to Colossians chapter 1. By him are all things and by him all things exist. He created all things. Talking about Christ. For he put everything in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So in the world in which we live, when Jesus was here, he could walk on water. He could multiply loaves of fishes, excuse me, loaves of bread and multiply fishes and put them in the hands of people and the people would all eat. He could speak to the disciples and say to them, go cast your line into the lake, pull out a fish. And the first fish you find, stick your hands right inside of its mouth. There'll be a coin. Take that coin and go pay the taxes because he's God. He could speak to the storm and tell the, the storm to cease. The winds to stop because he's God. These things cannot be done by anybody else other than him. Yet at the same time, all of New Jerusalem, all of eternity to come is going to be subject to him also. That's what this is saying. Everything is placed under the rule of God. So you don't have a crevice in your heart. You don't have a thought in your mind. You don't have a finger on your hand. You don't have a beating in your heart that is not subject to the power of God. Yeah, all of it. Everything about you belongs to him. If, in fact, you claim him as your Lord and your master. Yeah. And, and, and true submission is to acknowledge that and then to come up under his authority so that his rule and his power governs your actions. This is why verse 9 says, but we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. We just went over that, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. He died for all of us. The word taste, that's a euphemism. That's a polite way of saying that he died on our behalf. That's all that means. Yeah. One man died. And all of us are made right with God. So the, the grace of God is manifested through his ability to act super uh, sacrificially for each one of us. That, 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 that's a beautiful thing. God is the kind of God that requires satisfaction or sacrifice for sin. If we want God to be satisfied with us, then God has to have a way of dealing with our iniquity. So God requires satisfaction because he's holy. But then he makes the sacrifice for our sins himself because he is love. Yeah, he, he's holy enough that where he's not going to allow you or me to approach him without the shedding of blood. And he has the right to do that. He has the right to create the qualifications by which we have fellowship with him. But rather than leaving that up to to us, he in turn provides the sacrifice himself so that he can demonstrate his love toward us by allowing us to come boldly into his presence. and Find grace to help in a time of need. Grace to help. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. What was he doing? Helping us. 
Yeah, thank God he died. He helped us. Look at verse 10. For it became him for whom all are all things and by whom are all things. That's that Colossians 1 language again. And bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Bringing many sons to glory. And this is why people say God made sons of men, sons of God, by making the son of God, son of man. Or we can say it this way. The son of God became the son of man so that we, the sons of men, could become sons of God, children of God. That, that, that's what happened. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified, or both he that is holy and those who are made holy are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the Lord is never ashamed of us because we identify with him through the blood of Jesus. Now, I'm assuming that all of us may have one, sometimes two people that whenever you have the the annual or the every five-year reunion, there's just certain people you're praying that they have to work during that reunion because they, you know, they, they just have a tendency to create problems, you know. So you're just saying, Lord, just let them have a double shift the night before and be too tired, be too tired to come to the park or come over to Grandma's house or something, something like that. But... If you have someone like that who, when they come, they get sloppy drunk. and They're just falling all over everybody and slurring their words. Or if you have somebody who just terrible language, just mean-spirited. Somebody who just constantly stirring up strife. They're not happy unless everybody's mad, bitter. Then people like that, we tend to be somewhat ashamed of. I use those. Those are pretty, pretty bad examples. But but here's what I'm getting at. All of us in here have had things in our lives that did not please people. And we still have sin in our lives. But yet verse 11 says Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed of us. Yep, he's not ashamed. So verse 12 is written in such a way as to put these words in Jesus' mouth, saying, and we're quoting Psalms again here, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. These writers read the Psalms and Old Testament books like Deuteronomy and different books like that. They read these passages as though these passages spoke about Christ. And that's what they believe. So if they believe that then, we should hold on to that now, even if other people may turn around and say, well, those verses didn't have anything to do with Jesus. Well, if it didn't, then why did they put it in here like that? They wrote it like that because they believe that the psalmist, Psalm 22, it talks about the, Lord on the 
the, the words of the Lord on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then the other verse following that, and that's also in this chapter, they believe these verses were messianic. They had something to do with the Messiah, the strong one that was to come. So he says in verse 14, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, death that is the devil. So here's why Jesus became a man. See, he had to look like us. He had to come into this world and be able to bleed. He had to come into this world with a, a fleshly body. He had to identify with us in order to redeem us. And that's what the next two verses said. To deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. It was through death that Jesus was able to spoil the powers of the devil. Think about that. He, couldn't, he could not have done this without dying. Because the act of dying made it possible for him to expire and then for him to take away from the adversary the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And that's why he could say at his resurrection, all power and authority has been given unto me. He was in, in, in charge of the key of David, as it says in the, the book of Revelation. So Jesus had to suffer a, a, an excruciatingly painful death at the hands of the devil in order for the devil to be deceived into thinking that he's actually going to win only for the Lord through his resurrection to take all power from him. And this is why when we mention the name of Jesus today, it has such force. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No matter what country of this, this world this may occur in, Anybody who mentions the name of Jesus can find salvation if they're calling on him because they're wanting to repent of their sins. That's what that's saying. Now, verse 15 is interesting. Because the last sentence of verse 14 speaks of the power of death and verse 15 speaks of the fear of death. So here this is telling us we do not need to be afraid of death. We don't. Death is a passageway. It's a gateway. That's all it is. It's a, it, it, it's a door that's open that gives us access to eternity. That, that's all it is. So we, we don't fear death. What is problematic for us is how we could possibly die. Not, not death itself, but how. I doubt seriously if there, there's anybody in here that wants to die falling out of an airplane or off the top of a high, a high building and I know I don't want to die being burned alive you understand See? So I, I, I wouldn't want to be involved with that and I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to be somebody who has some oxygen tanks and I'm going down into the caverns for the National Geographic and I'm a mile and a half down there exploring caves only to realize suddenly my instruments go dead and, I'm, and I've only got 15 minutes of oxygen left and, and it took me an hour and a half to get down here. Okay. Now that, that, that kind of stuff doesn't, doesn't encourage me. Yeah. But death itself doesn't bother me. 
It's how a person could, could pass away that can be troubling. Uh, I, I don't want to sit in a chair and, and get old and not know who my wife is. You understand that? I want to know her as long as I'm breathing in, 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 in this world. So without the fear of death, we're no longer in bondage. That's what Jesus did. He, he took away that, that bondage. We're no longer a slave to fear because the scripture says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So I hold on to that. So I think in my mind, it, it, no matter what takes place, the older I get, God has given me a spirit of a sound mind. So I expect my mind to stay strong and alert and keen. And I expect my thoughts to be what they need to be. That's that's important. I, I don't want to live all of my life afraid of that. I remember a preacher telling a story one time about when he was in his 30s, he had to go visit a preacher who was in his 70s. And this older preacher was about to die. And. He went to the older preacher's bedside and the older preacher was nervous and was wanting the younger man to pray with him over and over again. He was afraid to die. That's what it was. He was afraid to die. And, and this pastor, he said he was troubled by that. He said, how could a man give all of his life to preaching the gospel and now be afraid to die? So he said he was at home. He was praying about it. And he said, Lord, what, what is it? Why, why would this gentleman be, be so afraid to to, to leave this world. And he said, because that many things I've told him to do that he didn't do, and now he's got to come and face me. See, Let, let's not live our lives that way. Let, let's live our lives with, with liberty and freedom. The, the things that God puts on your heart to do, folks, do them. When the Lord puts his finger on anything in your heart and says, walk away from it, always remember he will never deal with anything in your heart and your life except he gives you the power to walk away from it. Now, you may not think you're strong enough at the time, but the power is there. Otherwise, we live our lives subject to bondage. And this is why when people have uh, addictions to, to heroin and addictions and stuff like that, they, they, they say, I tried to stop, but I couldn't stop. I tried to stop, but I couldn't stop. And, and they get convinced in their mind that they will never be able to break free of it. Well, as long as the adversary convinces us that since we've fallen into the mud 10,000 times in the past times, that we're going to do it 10,000 more times in the future, then the devil has us right where he wants us because he's already owning our mind. And it's like a little kid in school. Uh, the bully picks on him all the time, takes his money, takes his food. And, and um, the only consolation he's getting from people sometimes is, well, you know, he won't be in your class next year. I mean, that's not helping him now or helping her now, you know. And, and, and so every day is a chore because I got to stay in this cycle. See, that's, that's what happens. But the Lord came in order to die, to provide deliverance in verse 15, to break the cycle see, of bondage, to just, dis, just dismantle it entirely. That, that's a beautiful word, deliverance. Say that with me, deliverance. I, I, I like the way that rolls off the tongue. You know that? deliverance. That is a wonderful thing. Okay, verse 16. Our Savior did not come down here 
in the form of an angel. But he, he came like a Jewish baby, the seed of Abraham. Why did God choose the seed of Abraham? It was just a sovereign choice, that's all. He, he could have took a tribe in Africa if he wanted to. He could have took an Indian tribe in the Quechuan mountains of South America if he wanted to, but he just happened to choose Abraham, and from Abraham created a family, from that family a tribe, from that tribe a nation. He could have chosen someone from Norway. He could have did it in any way that, that he wanted to do it. But the scripture in Genesis, and this, this is little rabbit trail, but this is good to know. Genesis is primarily designed or set up in the first few chapters to introduce you to the seed of Abraham. Naturally, Genesis 1 and 2 is about creation. Yes, we know that, so we should believe in that. Then it introduces us to the devil, the Garden of Eden. We should believe in the devil. He's a deceiver. He's a murderer, a killer. Then it takes us into Noah, explains to us that from Noah came Three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth being the one, according to scripture, who populated the European isles and islands and things like that, which is why a hundred years ago, if you were studying languages or linguistics, they talked about the Japhetic languages or tongues. Now they say Indo-European. Mm -hmm. But today, when they talk about African languages, you can open up any book on linguistics. And when they talk about African languages, they still talk about Hamitic languages from Ham to this day. And we still talk about Semitic languages that comes from Shem. See? Some people uh, 80 years ago would write in the books Shemitic languages. But when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden... They had two sons, one killed the other, and then we go through these lineages, and it tells us Adam and Eve had sons and daughters. And then we learn the names of the sons, but we don't learn the names of all the daughters. So I tell people, don't, don't get frustrated over trying to figure out where everybody came from and what particular group or what particular world everybody came from, because Genesis was not designed to tell us all of that. It was designed to introduce us to a bare outline of everything that took place to hurry up and get us introduced to Noah's son, Shem, to introduce us to Abraham, who came from the lineage of Shem. I mean, the Bible could have been about the people in Africa if God wanted it to be about that. It could have been about all the folks in Europe if he wanted that. But he chose the Middle East. That's what he did. So this is why the scripture says Jesus took on him the seed of Abraham rather than the seed of someone named Juan Pablo. Okay, this is what God did. I didn't do this. So verse 17, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. But yet even in their rejection of him, he was still merciful to them, compassionate to them and was faithful to God. Hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, that's sacrifice. We, we, we do tend to be compassionate towards people that we know and, and, and people that look like us and act like us and have a lot of things in common with us. But Jesus made reconciliation. That means he brought reunion. 
Man was separated from God because of iniquity, because of sin. And that word bothers some people. They say, I don't like the word sin. It, it, it's offensive to me. Well, if, if you thought God meant it as a compliment, you ought to read it again. Yeah, The word sin is supposed to be offensive. For, for the Lord to say to us that we're sinners, he's saying we're born wrong and we need to be born again. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night and he was a very smart man. But yet this man found out with all of his brilliance and with all of what he knew about the Jewish law, he was still outside the kingdom of God. Now that, that had to be a heartbreaking thing to spend all of your life in religion only to learn. I don't even know God. There are a lot of people in this world like that. They go to church every week. Go to mosque every week, go to synagogue every week, go to Hindu temple every week, go to kingdom hall every week, go to Mormon temple every week and don't have a clue who God is because they're just separated, uh, by, uh, separated from God by, by their sins. So the sacrifice he made brought reconciliation or reunion. So let me start working towards the end here. There's a story of King Cyrus. Now he's mentioned in the Old Testament. But we have a lot of information on him from a Greek historian named Herodotus. A lot of, lot of good information in there. But, but there's a story of Cyrus when he, he, he achieved this famous victory. He took prisoner, uh, a very popular prince of that, of that time. And so since he had the prince and his family and, and everything, when he was brought with his family into Cyrus's tent, Cyrus said to this prince, what would you give me if I released your children? And the prince said to him, I'd give you half of all the, that I possess. And Cyrus said to him, well, what would you give me if I, or if I released you? He said, give you all that, that I possess. He said, well, what would you give me if I released you? Your wife, he said, I, I'd lay down my life for my wife, lay, lay down my life. Well, Cyrus was so moved by what this man said without wanting any kind of recompense. He just set them all free. So they they, they went on their, their, in their different directions or I should say together, wherever they were going. And, and one evening when they were sitting down together, rejoicing over the freedom that they had, the, the husband, he says to his wife, he says, did, did you not think that, that Cyrus was somewhat of a handsome man? And the wife replied, I didn't notice him sufficiently to tell because my eyes were fixed on the man that was willing to lay down his life for me. That's, that's what he had told Cyrus. He was willing to die for his wife. Well, we have someone that did die for us. It's not hypothetical. We have someone that really did climb up on the cross and pay the price for our sins. So why would we ever take our eyes off of him? Looking at that verse again there, verse 9, the first four words says, but we see Jesus. That's who we should be looking at. We see Jesus, not the angels, not the things of this world, but fix, fixated on him. Because verse 18 says he was tempted, he suffered. But he's able to nourish and nurse and care for all of us that are tempted. Jesus knew what it was like to be a man. He knew what it was like to be angry. Mark chapter 3 said he got mad. 
He knew what it was like to be tired. John chapter 4 said, being wearied from his journey, he rested on the well. We know he knew what it was like to be hungry, fasted several days, ate with his disciples often. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. He was on the cross, and the scripture says, behold, I thirst. And they gave him sponge soaked in vinegar. He knew what it was like to laugh and rejoice because when the disciples came back and they had cast out devils in his name, the scripture says he rejoiced in the spirit. I don't know how anybody can rejoice without being happy. Yeah, we know he slept. The disciples woke him up on the boat. So these these things in life, he he was like us. Don't ever allow anybody to cause you to believe Well, Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through. And my life is so different than his. And I mean, goodness, he never married. He never had kids. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He knows exactly what you what you're going through. Yeah, he has a bride called the church. She isn't always faithful. God has many children. And the children don't always do what the. Parents want done. God's heart breaks every day by the things that he sees taking place here on the earth. But with God having done so much for us, are we not indebted to him? Mm -hmm. We are. And we should we should allow God to uh, to lead and guide us the way that he wants. So if 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 a prince could be willing to die for his wife and give up so much for his children and for his own freedom, we ourselves should also be that way when it comes to Christ. To say, Lord, not my will, but your will, and keep first things first. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, the lesson tonight. Hebrews 2 is a powerful chapter. There's a lot in there, Lord. Help us to meditate on it over the next week. Next seven days, Lord, as we prepare for the next lesson. But thank you, God, for caring so much about us that you would give us this word that speaks so clearly. We love you. We appreciate you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen.